guys and gals, it's already June, which means the Tour de France is just a couple weeks away, and we here at Vela News have our 2019 Tour de France guide published on newsstand now, and you can get your own copy at www.velopress.com. Now look, we went a bit of a different tack this year. We again published analysis of all 21 stages, all 22 teams, but as opposed to years past where we got a lot of stories and copy from our good friends in France, this year we have gone alone, published our own Tour de France guide, which means we have some pretty interesting features this year. So look, it's 2019, it's the 30-year anniversary of Greg LeMond's win, the 20-year anniversary of Lance's first win, and the 10-year anniversary of that awesome battle between Armstrong and Contador, and we have some feature stories that take us inside those battles with some really great analysis on how the media infrastructure at the time shaped of our understanding of each Tour de France. We have this great piece by Rupert Guinness where he talks about he actually had to write two stories in 1989, one proclaiming Greg LeMond the winner and one proclaiming Laurent Fignon the winner. Uh, so we have those three feature stories plus all of the great analysis of the route plus all of the great analysis of the contenders that's the 2019 Velo News Tour de France guide. Again, get your copy today at www.velopress.com. Okay, let's get on with the show. Okay, welcome back to the Velo News podcast. I am Fred Dreyer, sitting here in the bowels of the Velo News World headquarters in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, not to be the world headquarters for very much longer, we're actually going to be changing our uh, location. Still in Boulder, just a different building, which means we're going to be hauling bikes and magazines and computers out of this room here pretty soon to be uh, settling down in a new location. I'm interested to check it out. That, of course, is not going to change anything for the man on the other end of the line, Andrew Hood. Uh, Andy, do you have uh, any plans to be moving the Velo News Spain headquarters anytime soon? No, I think the the man cave here in, in uh, Europe is uh, hopefully semi-permanent. We'll see. Uh, maybe we'll move to a, a, a place down by the beach if you guys gave me a raise. Maybe down at the Côte d'Azur. Yeah, let's, uh, I'll, I'll run that up the flagpole uh, real quick. Well, actually, Andy, bring that up. We have some big news here. Uh, after 20 years of being our uh, European correspondent, Andy Hood, you are an official Velo News team member now. You are now an official uh, staff member of Velo News. Doesn't really change anything, but uh, in title, y you're like a full time guy now. How does it feel? How does it how does it feel, Andy, to be an official staff member of Velo News as opposed to just a correspondent? Does that mean I get my own Velo News coffee mug? Yeah, you get the coffee mug. Uh, you get the coat. You get the tattoo. Oh, forgot to tell you about that part. Oh, yeah, yeah, tattoo right there next to my, uh, yeah. Well, uh, we'll see about that. No, it's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's going to be interesting. I haven't had a, haven't had a quote, real job uh, pff, since the 90s, mate. So hopefully I won't get fired. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, as your boss, I'm going to be um, looking over your work much more thoroughly because uh, you're an official Velonews employee. No, we're happy to have you aboard, Andy Hood. Uh, you've been with Velonews for 20 years. Any any memories from that first year of uh, coming to write for Velonews? Yeah, it was actually, uh, it was kind of a kind of a, a big thrill. Personally, I mean, back in those days, you know, if you went to cover the Tour de France, you either had the gig with the Associated Press or the New York Times 
the USA Today or Velo News, and that was basically the four gigs that you could be as, as an American journalist before all this web stuff happened. So to kind of get my first few assignments there in Velo News, it was kind of a, a big deal there back in the 90s for me, just as a little budding budding little uh, cycling journalist slash writer. So, yeah, so it's, the circle's complete. You know, maybe you have to come back to live in Boulder one of these days. It's so different now because every now and again, you know, you'll you'll see some of the reporters from the big newspapers, Wall Street Journal, USA Today will send some stringers. They'll be there. They'll drop in for a couple stages here and there. But by and large, yeah, it's uh, Velo News and then some, like, cycling blogs or these online sites that, you know, have, you know they kind of come and go. But we have a great show this week. In the second part of the program, I have an interview with Richie Port. I taped a few weeks ago, and we sat down at the Tour of California and talked about a lot of the problems and bad luck that Richie has had during the Tour de France. It gave Richie the uh, ability to sort of tell us what was going on behind the scenes, his perspective of the crash from a few years ago, uh, the crash of the Roubaix stage last year, and just why it is that uh, sometimes what we see on television doesn't give the full picture of some of the troubles that these riders are having. So that is the second part of the show. It's my interview with Richie Port. But uh, we're going to talk about that later. Andy, you and I are going to talk about a couple of different pointers. You know, it's June. we got the Dauphiné going on. We have Tour de Suisse coming up next week. So we're going to talk about what June racing means uh, as we look ahead towards the Tour de France. We're also going to talk about some of the, the news that has broken over the last week, namely that Vincenzo Nibali has confirmed he will be leaving Bahrain Merida and going to Trek Segafredo for 2020. Uh, we also have some news that uh, Bahrain Merida confirmed has brought on Rod Ellingworth from uh, Team Ineos to be its team principal. And then we're going to talk about this Tour de France guide hoodie and the story that you wrote for it about the 2009 Tour de France. You were on the ground. You were there for Contador versus Armstrong. And we're going to get your take and some memories on how fun it was to cover that race. But uh, let's get into it. First topic, June racing. We just saw the conclusion of the second stage of the Dauphiné. We have the Tour de Suisse coming up. Hoodie, when you look at these two races and you look at the riders, the marquee riders who are trying to do well in these races, what can these races tell us about June? And, and what are the challenges that these guys face in June? Yeah, it, it, I, you know these these two races have kind of evolved over the last couple of years in terms of uh, where they fit in really in the approach of the tour. If you look back traditionally, the Dauphiné has always been kind of the springboard for the big tour riders. In fact, I think uh, just looking over the Palmares, the last Tour de France winner to have won the Tour de Suisse was uh, Lance Armstrong in two thousand and one. Um, so. The Dauphiné seems to be still the preferred race to head into the tour. The mountains are, even though uh, Switzerland is famous for its mountains and they are these monstrous, huge climbs, uh, the Dauphiné is, is typically considered the harder race. And usually the the, the route now that uh, ASO owns, you know, they'll oftentimes will work in some of the big tour climbs into the Dauphiné route. So a lot of the big names like to go there and kind of hit some of these climbs at race speed and really get a good flavor of Whitson's tour for June. And just, you know, it's a preferred place for Team Sky. I mean, Wiggins won it two years. Froome won it three years. Garrett Thomas won it last year ahead of uh, going into the tour. So that's the big testing ground. It's good to see all the big guns there racing. I mean, we got a really good field at the Dauphiné. All the French guys are there. Dumoulin's there. Uh, I think it's going to be, you know, pretty telling 
Uh, you know, these days just, you can't really hide your form and you can't chase back your form that fast. If you're not good now, you won't be good in three weeks of the tour. So it opens with a couple of hilly stages before the flat stage three from Le Puy and Valais. Uh, before the big test on Wednesday, we have an individual time trial. Um, I think that's going to be pretty telling because, yeah, Chris Froome is there, Thibaut Pino. It's not a, you know, it's 26.1K. That's that's not insignificant. That's not a, you know, long 35 or 50K TT. But, hey, you can, you can tell a lot in 26.1K. So I think I'm going to have my eyes set on that. But then I'm going to have my eyes set on these, uh, these final two days because uh, Saturday, Sunday, the Dauphiné finishes with pretty – with two pretty good-sized mountain stages, we have this uh, day on Saturday that looks like it has one, two, three, four categorized climbs. Um, and so to me, I mean, I, my eyes are on Chris Froome at this race. We haven't seen him race a ton this year. Um, he, you know, he's, he's the guy that everyone's watching. Uh, curious that Garrett Thomas is not here this year. You know, you just rattle off the statistics about how the Dauphiné is usually the harbinger of success at Tour de France. And Ineos sent Garrett Thomas to the Tour de Suisse and let uh, Chris Froome go to the Dauphiné. Should we read anything into that? Uh, hoodie, should we read the tea leaves at all on that move? Yeah, I did a, a little snooping around on that story earlier this season because you know I, I kind of noticed that uh, Thomas and Froome were on just completely different schedules this year. They haven't raced together. I don't think uh, there might have been one day they did together, or but they've been together at the uh, at the training camps. They say there's nothing kind of nefarious behind this. There's no sort of uh, bad blood between these guys. There's no budding rival, at least at least not yet. That'll come in July. But uh, they basically just said it's it's better for us to spread our wealth. That was certainly the case before Enios came on as the new title sponsor. You know they wanted to put some big wins on the board early this year. Um, but when you look at the Dauphiné. Uh, you know, excuse me, Team Enios at the Dauphiné this week. That's basically their Tour de France team. You're going to basically take out two names and put in uh, Bernal and Garrett Thomas, and the rest of those guys are all going to the Tour. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too, which did make me wonder. I mean, you know, the, the Tour de Suisse is longer, it's harder, a lot of times there's bad weather. It is a full week later in the schedule, which means fewer uh, days to recover before the Tour de France. And, you know, knowing that Garrett Thomas didn't have a stellar spring, he was sick, he had that scheduled altitude camp that was ruined due, due to snow. I mean, he he did okay at Romandy. I believe he was third overall, but he was kind of a bummer at Tirreno. So I don't know. I mean, maybe it's just, it's just the pathway that they chose for them. But yeah, having the big stinger just a couple weeks before the Tour de France, I, I'm eager to see how Garrett Thomas uh, rebounds from something like that. Um, so who's your pick to win the Dauphiné? Looking at this race, looking at the lineup, seeing how everyone is, who do you think is going to win? I think the, the time trial is going to be key. Uh, I think there are some hard mountains in this Dauphiné, but I think there's going to be some pretty big differences in that time trial. 26K, as you'll still see 20, 30 seconds between some of these guys. And I think that's going to really kind of mark you know, who's going to be in the driver's seat going into this mountain. So I think, I don't know. I mean, I'm interested to see how Froome goes. I think he'll be kind of want to, to reassert himself a little bit. He wants to have that momentum going into the tour and he wants to win his fifth tour last year. It obviously didn't go well for him in the tour de France, even though bad tour for Chris Froome is still third. Um, you know, he hasn't raced a lot because he's putting everything, everything into winning that kind of record tying fifth yellow Jersey. If we don't count the seven other, 
tours won by a certain Texan. Um, but the, uh, you know, I think, I think Froome has a strong time trial. He'll be in the driver's seat to win. I'm anxious to kind of see how uh, Pinot and, and Bardet go. Um, I still think, I mean, part of me still believes, man, I think a Frenchman maybe can win the tour someday, some year. That might have to wait until Froome retires, but I think if uh, my little uh, my little dark horse this year in the tour for me is uh, Pinot. I don't know, man. Pinot is a tough guy. He didn't go to the Giro this year, so I'm interested to see how, uh, how Thibaut can do in, in Dauphiné. He raced aggressively today, uh, this being Monday, stage two, and made this little split of GC guys that put uh, 30 seconds on some of the guy. Richie Port was in the back, but uh, Thibaut Pinot and some of the other favorites. But yeah, I mean, we have, oh, look at this star-studded lineup. Chris Froome, Adam Yates, Roman Bardet, Dan Martin, Philippe, Manny Bookman, Jakob Fugelsang, Nairo Quintana, Thibaut Pino, Stevie Cruiseship, Richie Port, Mike Woods, and then down there, uh, Tom Dumoulin. Now, Tom Dumoulin spoke with uh, reporters at the finish line today, said he is fighting through a bit of a knee injury. He's not feeling super confident. Uh, my hope is that that is just the standard uh, redirect, and he is just trying to uh, get everyone off of his scent, because I would like nothing more than a fully... Uh, powered up Tom Dumoulin getting ready to just drop people at the Tour de France. Uh, but anyway, we're going to keep watching the Tour, the, uh, the Dauphiné. We're going to talk about the Tour de Suisse next week. So let's move on to our next talking point. News came out this past week, confirmation of a story that we've been following for a while. Vincenzo Nibali is leaving Bahrain Merida to go to Trek Segafredo. There's a lot of, there's a lot of angles to this story, Hoodie. The first that comes to mind is that, you know, Bahrain Merida, when it was founded, what was that, two and a half, three years ago, I just, it really seemed like in the moment it was completely built around Vincenzo Nibali and his relationship with team management, his relationship with this Sheikh Nasser of uh, the kingdom of Bahrain. Yeah, you're right, because this team really was built around Vincenzo when it was born out of the kind of a Lampre out of 2017 was the first season. And, uh, you know, he, he's going to trek. He'll, he'll kind of do uh, he'll bring a lot of people with him, his trainer, a couple of key riders, uh, some of his uh, swan years. will go with him over to trek. Uh, I think a lot of it came down to uh, perhaps money. And I know that um, the, the man behind uh, the founder of uh, the Segafredo company is Italian, really wanted to have a strong Italian rider on trek Segafredo. Nibali is clearly the top Italian rider right now, still showing himself capable of winning a Grand Tour, you know, just finished second at the Giro. That's that's just the what happens in professional cycling. You know, there's a lot of moving parts to these teams. Riders come and go. Managers come and go. Sponsors come and go. It's always very fluid. And so, you know, those those kind of uh, long-running teams like maybe Quickstep with Patrick Lefebvre at the helm for – or Enzubio uh, – in Zue, Zubio and Zue at the top of Movistar for decades. That's pretty rare in cycling, to tell the truth. Yeah, I thought th an interesting element of this team also, like you said, was that um, Segafredo, this Italian company, really wanted to have a marquee rider on the team. You know, Trek Segafredo is an American team, but it really harkened back to that argument and discussion that we've had over the years, which is, man, why is it so hard for Italy to have 
world tour teams. I mean, you have this big champion like Vincenzo Nibali. You have this company like Sega Fredo that's dedicated to cycling. Whether or not it has the coffers to directly fund its own cycling team, that's open for debate. But, you know, usually in the past when you had combinations like that, great riders, good team management, a sponsor that's dedicated to Italian cyclists, that's interested in Italian cyclists, you could put together some type of outfit and combine you know, all three to have a big marquee team where the DNA from sponsor all the way down to rider was Italian. And it's just strange that like, that just can't happen anymore. You know, what are some of the dynamics that uh, are still present right now that prevent Italy from, you know, matching up sponsor rider management to have a world tour team. Yeah, that's right, Fred. It's It's been a, a slow decline of Italian cycling over the last uh, half decade or so, hasn't it? I mean, there used to be two or three major world tour Italian teams, you know, another half dozen or so at the pro Conti level, you know, even below that, rich uh, continental levels, plus just a real kind of deep roots in the classics and the sprinters and the GC guys. And it's slowly been just kind of dying on the vine. Even a guy like Nibali, you know, he, he really didn't come through the traditional, um, you know, you've been doing some great reporting over the years on development programs and in Belgium, how the U S are doing it, uh, how France is doing it. Some of these other countries, how the, how the UK and Australia have done it through their track programs. Uh, Italy doesn't have that. They don't have uh, these feeder programs. They don't have a strong track program. And uh, they just kind of rely on this kind of old network that is just slowly, uh, slowly died away. I mean, now we're in a situation where today there's not even one Italian world tour team. The Pro Conti teams are saying they're really struggling. They're very worried about this new reform. It's going to even make it harder for the Pro Conti teams to get into the Grand Tours. Uh, so they're saying that's going to really happen. Another blow at the, kind of that second level with the Italian racing with the Pro Conti level. Uh, I ran into Amadio, the guy who used to run um, Leaky Gas. Uh, he's been out of the game now for a couple of years. And he's he said he's been going around hat in hand trying to find an Italian sponsor. And he wants to get another team going. And he says it's just about impossible right now for a lot of economic reasons, uh, maybe some political reasons. Uh, they say the tax rates are very high. A lot of bureaucracy just make it real difficult to kind of build something as big and dynamic as a professional racing team and to do it in Italy right now. It's not to say there's not money there. But I think it's just really hard right now for Italian sponsors to come into the sport. He saw Segafredo, major Italian uh, sponsor. You know, he decided to link up with a with a a team that's not an Italian licensed team. I think for a lot of those very same reasons. Yeah, it's interesting though because you do see Italian DNA splashed around through so many teams in the peloton. I mean, Astana, Bahrain, Merida. You see Italian managers, Luca Gorcellena. You see these people who have experience, but. Yeah, it's sort of like um, all of the components of your favorite band are out there playing in different bands, but there's just there's just no way to bring Led Zeppelin to come together to play your favorite concert because they're too busy playing in, I don't know, like uh, cover bands out there. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll see what Nibali can do. I mean, Aru is coming uh, off, uh, off an injury. I mean, uh, Aru was kind of hyped up to be the next big guy. There's obviously some top young talent coming up through the ranks. Uh, we saw some of that in the Giro. Nibali is still a very big star. So it's a big coup for Trek Segafredo to get him. 
it's going to be interesting to see what he can do. Uh, even really at this Tour de France, he's, he was already talking down his chances after the, the, the after the Giro. Kind of like you're saying, maybe Dumoulin throwing them off his scent a little bit, saying he's going to uh, just chase uh, stages. He said he's going to race kind of on an instinct in this tour, just how he feels every day, not worry about the GC. And uh, he said even suggesting he might even race for the King of the Mountains jersey, uh, maybe something different. But then Nibali, I don't never know with the Shark. You know, I think he'll he'll stay in the GC as long as he can, uh, because it's you know it's a it's a good it's a good uh, tour course for Nibali when you look at it. Uh, I love it. I I take everything he says these days in the cycling press with a huge grain of salt, and just assume that most of it is either misdirect or just trying to get under the skin of his competitors, like we saw with poor Primoz Roglic, who I you know I haven't seen any confirmation if he has gone to Nibali's house to view his uh, trophy case, as was uh, you know proposed to him. I, that first opening weekend of the Giro, when Nibali said, "Hey, race like a race like a champion, man! Come over to my house. I'll show you my uh, trophies." So, well, we're, again, that's the story we're going to be following. Uh, Nibali to Trek Segafredo. He's going to have to balance his time with Richie Port. That should be super fun. Which you know will bring us yet another storyline to follow in 2020. Uh, other news that came down and was confirmed this week: something we've had our eyes on for a while. Um, Rod Ellingworth, the former, I, he, he was head of sports science or sports performance with Team Sky and Ineos, left to join Bahrain Merida, which was confirmed this week. The interesting wrinkle there was that, you know, I thought he was coming over in a similar sort of sports science training role, but he is, he is the team principal. He is in charge of it. He is the David Brailsford of Team Bahrain Merida. So who do you, you know, what's the context there? Have we seen... Things like this happened in the past where people who seem to come over from a team having, you know, one one focus from a team and then they are elevated to becoming the general manager. I mean, it, to me, this seems like someone being the offensive coordinator who now is either the head coach or the or the general manager. Um, yeah, I think that's, uh, that's probably a good analogy, actually, going from the offensive coordinator being the, the, the head coach. Um because he's been in that kind of role, I think, uh, already at Team Sky. I mean, he's he's a product of of this Team GB push that started back in the 2000s. You know, when they really put all that focus on the track racing back in the middle of uh, you know going into 2006, 2008, 2012 track cycles, even before Team Sky was born. He was one of the key guys really early on in the careers of, like you were saying, uh, Cavendish and Wigo. You know, more than 10 years ago, he's been really part of this you know, uh, British cycling renaissance. So it, it, I think in this, and he's had kind of a, a managerial role really behind the scenes at, at Team Sky over the last couple of years anyway. I mean, Tim Carrison is, I think, that numbers guy that really crunches all the power numbers and and does a lot of the nuts and bolts of uh, the training programs for guys like Froome. Uh, I know uh, Ellingworth obviously has, has had his hands in that, but I think he's also taken kind of a bigger, more strategic role at Team Sky over the last couple of years. And, it, you know, it's a, it's a new professional challenge for him. And it will be interesting to see, you know, if some of that uh, Team Sky DNA does get sprinkled around some other teams, how they can uh, uh, work that into their program over there. It's uh, by Ron Medley again. Um, McLaren is supposed to be stepping up going into next year. So kind of blending, I think, some of that uh, some of that technical 
expertise that McLaren has from Formula One, mixing that in with some of the Team Sky stuff that Ellingworth is bringing in from uh, his legacy, could be an interesting mix. You know, of course, now they'll need some riders to kind of fit into that program. You know, the big rumor, of course, is Landis going over there, and I think some other names have been linked to that team. Um, but yeah, he's going to be moving into that, that. The one quote I think I read on Cycling Weekly. Uh, he said uh, that he wants to try to be the uh, Han Solo to the Ineos Darth Vader. I don't think he said that exactly himself. Someone said that about him. So set the record straight there. <laughs> I think it's interesting because of the different challenges that uh, Ellingworth is going to be finding this job. I mean, look, no two jobs are alike, but traditionally when you see someone in that team principal slash head honcho role with the team, I mean, they are choosing the riders. They are managing the relationship with the sponsor. They are setting schedules, setting the focus for the team. I mean, they're doing a lot of 30,000-foot type uh, managerial stuff, but like there's a, there's a lot that goes into it. A lot of time, these people travel constantly. You know, when you talk to David Brailsford about what his life is like, I mean, he's popping up at all these different races for like one day, two day. Yeah, he's at the tour, and you know, if they have a really strong Giro squad, he's going to be there. But like, you know, he's the guy that you see like pop up at Paris Roubaix, and then see the next day that he's at Yorkshire or or whatever. So, ton of travel, managing a lot of different. Um, concerned entities from the riders to the coaches to the sponsors, and then also being a public face of the team. He's the guy that has to go out there to the, the media after the team sucks, and guys like you and me get to just pepper him with annoying questions. So, uh, you know, look, I've spoken with Rod before. I did an interview with him last year at the tour about uh, Garrett Thomas. Very Just charming guy, really funny, great sense of humor, but uh, it'll be interesting to see how he slots into that position with all these new pressures coming at him. It, it might drive a man to drinking. We'll see how he handles that. But you're exactly right. It's it's a you know it's a really tough job. I think talk to the general managers and they're like, oh, okay, yeah, I can talk to you for 15 minutes next Thursday because they're just so booked up with meetings. Well, before we get to our interview here, uh, hoodie, I wanted to talk to you about uh, this. 2019 Tour de France guide we have put together. You heard me talk about it at the top of the show. It is our annual tour guide, a little bit different this year. We, uh, in the past, were partnered with ASO and L'Equipe, which would provide a lot of the stories and content in there. Um, this year, we went, we struck out on our own, and we're, we're producing everything nuts for soup to nuts, as they say. And one of the interesting elements of this year's tour guide is we looked back at 1989, 2009 and uh, 1999 tours. And, you know, when you write about old tours, especially tours where there have been like books written about it, it, it's a bit of a challenge to come up with a fresh angle. And the angle that we came up with was looking at how the media infrastructure and the technology around media at the time shaped our understanding of the race. And, you know, I didn't expect the 2009 tour to be that interesting from that angle because 2009 doesn't seem like that long ago. Seems like the media infrastructure is pretty similar to what we have. But Hoodie, you took this idea and really ran with it. And you did a great job of showing how new and different the storytelling and reporting around the 2009 Tour de France was because of the rise of social media, the 24-hour news cycle, how all these changes in the media landscape conspired to make this tour so different. And then, of course, you had Armstrong versus Contador, which was just an amazing storyline. But it felt like a good way to start talking about this tour hoodie. 
What are some memories that you have, media memories, press conferences, scrums, that you that just really bring back to life that 2009 Tour de France? Yeah, you really you really saw the the uh, impact of Armstrong's comeback on the media when he raced that year's Giro d'Italia, because remember that that was a high profile move by Lance. He hadn't raced the Giro, I don't think, ever during his kind of seven year run before that. And so for him to be at the tour, they had the media coming from all the a lot of the uh, all the all the uh, European media was at the Giro. All of uh, Lance's old foes and friends in the press room were all back. Lance was there. So all of his enemies and all of his friends in the press room, because he had both, were all at this Giro. The press room was packed at the Giro. So right away, you had a a sensation that this was going to be a very different tour. But the big difference really that changed the tone of of that kind of context of that little window of time 10 years ago was really this is when we saw Twitter – and all the social media stuff really taken off because you know Facebook had been around, Twitter had been around, but Lance was one of the really the early adapters, adopters of uh, this Twitter platform. And I remember Lance was starting to use Twitter. He uh, even at a certain point uh, stopped talking to the media because uh, people were starting to pepper him with questions about doping. You know, it was another big part of this story, too. When Lance came back in 2009, it was a very different media landscape than it, even in 2005 because we had just scandal after scandal after scandal from 2005 to 2009. We had Floyd Landis. We had the Operacion uh, Puerto. We had uh, the Rasmussen case, Rico, just one case after another of doping. So when Lance made his big comeback, he kind of just jumped right into this kind of calderum of uh, a lot of pent-up uh, anger and really people waiting to go after Lance. And I think he saw that at some of the early races he had gone to that year, kind of that famous press conference he gave. I think the Tour of California still was in February that year, right? So a lot of that stuff uh, was just kind of reaching the boiling point going up and toward toward that Giro and that, and that Tour de France. Yeah, and so famously he stopped talking to the media and was just reaching out to fans directly over Twitter and tweeting his thoughts and retweeting stuff. And, um, you know, hey, that's one way to keep those pesky reporters off you. But it sounds like, Hoodie, uh, since Twitter was, it was fairly new, I believe it had only been around for a year, maybe less than a year at that point. There was some open debate amongst the reporters of, well, do you use that as a quote? Can Twitter be the basis of news? No, Lance didn't say this at a press conference, or he didn't say it at a finish line to a reporter. He typed it into his phone and sent it out there to the world. So, like, how do you quote that? I I just remember I was in journalism school at that time. I had been at Vela News, but I had left. But this debate was going on even at journalism school. Okay, someone tweets something out. Is that an official statement? Is that just someone's, like garbage thoughts? Like how much weight and credence do you give thoughts like that? So take me through the process that the uh, cycling media core went through in deciding what to do with Lance's tweets. Yeah, it's funny now to think that, uh, you know, trade wars and uh, disputes can happen over a tweet these days. But 10 years ago, it really was kind of this new phenomenon. And there was a certain point, I remember during that year's Giro, that Lance simply just stopped talking to the media. He wasn't even talking to, like I said, Adela Sport, which I think had, was part of the deal for him to come in there to the Giro through RCS. He was going to be high-profile relationship with La Gazzetta. 
he even stopped talking to them about halfway through the Giro. So, and then he was just putting out these tweets. He'd be like, oh, great stage today, or, you know, I didn't like this, or, you know, you know, you know how Lance was just on Twitter all the time. And so the journalist, we all kind of circled our wagons and said, you know, Lance isn't talking to us. Because uh, he, he, even at the end of his first little run in the Tour de France, he would kind of sometimes give out, uh, you know, do little uh, uh, quotes through his press agent, you know, answer four or five questions over a, a digital voicemail thing. And it would go out and people could use that because it was hear his voice. So everyone's trying to get their heads around this Twitter thing. So all the journalists there, we kind of create, decided to create this little impromptu strike. We decided we're not going to use these Twitter missives uh, until Lance spoke to us. And, um, and that story got picked up by the AFP that went out on the wires pretty quickly. And within a half an hour, someone from New York called the AP writer there and said, no, 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 no. If Lance Armstrong writes something on Twitter, that is as good as a quote. So right there, we were kind of breaking this journalistic ground during that, during that Giro d'Italia. And, you know, all of us trying to get our heads around exactly what Twitter was. And then on the other side of this coin, really, you know, it also unleashed all these haters. It gave Twitter gave all the haters a voice that they never had because before this, the media was controlling the narrative. You had even with uh, blogs and with uh, forum comments, it wasn't as high profile as Twitter. Suddenly, people could start throwing these bombs out on Twitter on uh, an anonymous account with no kind of liability really to what they were saying. And so people were saying some outrageous things about Lance and really pushing the envelope in, some, in terms of some of that, you know, uh, doping narrative that, that the, a lot of the mainstream media couldn't do. I love it that you guys staged your own strike, your protest, and it lasted about half an hour. The poor cycling press corps <laughs> having, its, uh, having its protest against Lance and that it's just immediately broken. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but you know, we we were there were some heavy hitters in this little. Uh, we know we had all the major newspapers in Europe. We had all the major journalists. We're all here to talk to Lance, and if he isn't us, we're not going to put out his Twitter messages in our stories. But, but eventually, I think Lance came around and started talking to us again, and um, you know, then that kind of just built up toward that 2009 tour in terms of that the media landscape had changed by the time Lance came back, and uh, you know, that race I thought was one of the most interesting uh, tours ever. Really, that kind of in-house fight between Contador and uh, and Armstrong, and I kind of reached out to both of those guys to see if they wanted to talk about it, and and neither was really too interested in really kind of kicking that uh, kicking that sleeping bear. But that's that's a, that's a good book right there if we could get those two guys uh, talking about what happened really inside the team bus during that during that uh, Tour de France. Well, again, Hoodie, I appreciate you sharing those thoughts from the 2009 Tour de France, and again, you can read. Andrew Hood's feature, plus features from 1989, 1999 in our Tour de France guide, which is out now. Check it out at velopress.com. Okay, uh, we're going to end the show with my interview uh, with Richie Port. As I mentioned at the top of the show, I sat down with Richie for about uh, 15 minutes at the Tour of California a few weeks back, and we talked a lot about the bad luck that he's had at the Tour de France over the years. We talked about his preparation for this year's tour. He's a little under the weather coming into June, but really it's about the uh, the psychological and emotional impact of some of these problems that Port has faced at the Tour and how he has dealt with them. So... We will leave you this week with Richie Port. Talk to you next week. Yeah, 
bloke, I think. I mean, obviously, 2017, that was the problem I had with the crashes. People see it and they say, yeah, but you're already on the, the wrong line. It's like, yeah, that's because that's where the TV camera picked it up. But, um, you know, the, the problem I had there was the, the descent before, the same thing happened. You touch the brakes, the rear of the bike locks up, um, you know, and then the, there was no team car there because it split to pieces and, and um, there was no chance. But, I mean, at the end of the day, that crash, I was I was in for the, the ride as soon as I touched the brakes. I was not, you know, like the, if the rear of the bike um, locks up. And it's, it's one of the scariest things that ever happened to me was picking between a grass verge or a rock wall to stop. And, um, you know, people can say whatever they want to say and, and um, pick you to pieces. But at the end of the day, I know what happened. Um, you know, it's like the... You know, the MotoGP riders, when they crash, they know what went wrong. But, uh, you know, it's, they're also on a circuit for us. It's always different. And, um, you know, it's, it's one of those crashes that you kind of only want to have once in your career. And, uh, you know, I sort of had that one. Um, I know what happened. And, uh, you know, the mechanic who picked my bike up knew what happened. And uh, I think that's all that needs to be said. Yeah. How about the one uh, last year at Roubaix on the car? Yeah. yeah, I mean, whatever, whatever you want to say, it's like, um, you know, the start of that stage was, it was the most stressful, even the neutral that day was super stressful, and then um, I remember, not much, you know, I remember someone from the left taking, you know, there's quite a lot of guys that crashed, I think that I was just probably the smallest guy in the crash, and, you know, you, you hit the ground going that speed, and of course, a cyclist, anyone that's had a, a broken collarbone knows the feeling. I knew straight away that that was it. You know, there was no point really even trying to get back on the bike. And, and the, the first doctor who came to me said, get in the ambulance, you've broken your collarbone. So I was a disaster. I mean, um, you know, that's probably all that there is really to it. It's one of those mass crashes. Like, what do you do in a mass crash? What's the emotion in the very moment after something like that? Uh, I mean... And then how do you progress past that? I think the emotion there for me was that, um, you know, I'd, we'd had the birth of our, our first baby, my wife and I, and it was stressful because the timing wasn't fantastic and, you know, left sort of a couple of days after he was born to go to Tour de Suisse and then I didn't have much time after. And you think of all those sacrifices that you'd made and it was kind of a very human thing it's like bmc put a lot of money and resources into to me doing well at that tour but then it's such a human thing all the hours that i had training and and getting ready for the tour to hit it in in good form um then to have something like that happen and um yeah i'm not an emotional person but you know maybe it was the the pain of breaking another bone because it's not exactly the nicest thing to do to break a bone but then I think for me it was more that you know being away from my wife with a, a, a newborn baby at home and, and that like it it was just like oh well that was work, that was for nothing you know all those training camps and all that stress of from the team of being there for the birth and this and that it was uh, it, it all was just in, in a split second taken away from you. How do you emotionally move past that? How do you get back to the point where you can be like, all right, I'm like, back motivated, I'm back, want to do it again? I guess it's just the job, isn't it? It's like, you know, it's, um, 
ultimately that's what you're getting paid to do. It's a, I wouldn't say cycling, being a professional cyclist is the easiest job in the world, but it is kind of a privilege in the, you know, the times where um, after the race when you can, you know, chill out a bit and, and, and ride, you know, live in the south of France, some of the most beautiful riding roads in the world. Like, there's not a day that does, that goes by that I don't sort of realise that it's a privileged position, but, you know, it's... I mean, cycling is just one of those sports that the um, highs are so high, but then the lows are so low. I mean, it's when it's not going well, it's it's one of the toughest games, you know, that you can you can be in. But still, it's not such a bad life. Yeah. Has your perspective on the sport changed at all since being coming, becoming a father? I think for sure. I mean, I mean, it used to be so simple to you know go ride the bike come home and and um you know have a have your recovery meal and sit on the couch and find something you wanted to watch for, on tv whereas now it's like you come home and some little hand appears from nowhere that wants to pull your computer onto the ground or your phone it's like but i think it's i mean it's it's good fun i mean the whole um sleep deprivation part like you know it's nice to come to races and have the choice of having a solo room so you can go to bed at 10 o'clock and i mean i slept in this morning till 8 15 which is first um but i think it's awesome to have that perspective in in your life of um you know someone I think it's a responsibility, isn't it, when you have that little baby there, um, the first time you're in your arms, you're like, well, this is what responsibility is. You know. Did it change your perspective at all around how you deal with criticism? Yeah, but I mean, there's different criticism. There's, you know, the, the guy behind the keyboard who's probably never actually you know probably doesn't understand the sport i mean that's like whatever but then when it's criticism from within teams like that's a bit harder it's uh, i mean ultimately you know when you get to my stage in the career you know what works for you you know the things that work and it's like all you try and do is replicate that i mean i know how to get myself into to race form and um you know it's like i think the sport's getting harder and harder or, or maybe my generation's getting older as well like it's um yeah it, it is the, um, there's no secret this year that the peloton's been absolutely flying you know maybe it's because the the winter there in Europe was so good that everyone's been at altitude and everyone's ready to race. So, um, you know, I'm still motivated to, to do well there. What do you think is possible to tour this year? I don't know. I think it's, to me, the, the interesting one is um, to see the dynamics of Team Ineos. Now, you know, Bernal's um, out of the Giro. <laughs> it's another, I mean, for me, he's the, the future, I think, of the sport. Um, who knows? It's a it's a more traditional tour than what it has been the past few years. So hopefully, um, you know, there's no no bad luck for myself. Awesome, man. Well, hey, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for making. Thank you. Time.